Hello, hello, I'm Chris. I am Preston. And welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. This week we are taking on another Zizek essay. This one is ref his reflections after 9-11. Um, I enjoyed this one. It was a little, a little terrifying learning that it was written, you know, shortly after 2001. And some of the things seem a little prescient. Kind of looked into the future a little bit. Yeah, I felt that really a lot of the events after 9-11, just personally for me, I was only six years old. And so it was obviously an event in my memory, but it wasn't the same as it was obviously for my parents or my grandparents' generation. But I think only in the last five years have I really processed in some way the magnitude of that event in American history. Do you do you remember like seeing it at all? Were you old enough to remember? Yeah, I was old enough. Kind of stuff. Yeah, I still remember like getting ready to go to school and my mom just glued to the TV and as an oblivious fifth grader at the time. Um just did not understand what the big deal was and then i got to school and they like got all the grades together in rooms and we just watched the news for a couple hours and they sent everybody home and uh definitely like did not understand the gravity of what all that was for a couple years yeah and i mean you can trace a line not even from mainstream american politics even though these threads have become mainstream from like waco type extremist american ideologies up through 9-11 truthers which for those of you who are in europe 9-11 truthers is a terrible phrase really are basically just conspiracy theorists who believe it never happened they just they don't believe it happened like i like Early high or school. No, sorry, it was a conspiracy. They believed it happened, but it wasn't. It yeah, wasn't. There you go. Yeah. So early high school. Put my hand up on this one. I definitely went down that rabbit hole. Um, before like, and this is before you know you learn how conspiracy theories work, right? And it is all based on picking and choosing very specific things in specific contexts. So it's like zooming way in on a study, yeah. on a graph, and being like, see? Do you see how much that climbed? And when you actually look at it, it's like... E yeah, um, exactly. It's, it's very much based on like picking and choosing these things that fit this great narrative. I mean, I feel like I can't buy into any conspiracy because I don't believe American politicians let alone politicians on a worldwide level yeah can like collude on this level because they're all too selfish and we would have learned about these things well just human error yeah you know? it's just there's right there's no there's just no way but that you buying into the whole thing that it was a a government operation there were explosives in the building which is all it's all nonsense and there's also a lot of fake facts that they, like in all these movies and everything, if you say it confidently, it makes it people sound just, real. yep, people will believe it. So let's, let's get into them a little. So one of the great things 
that Zizek does is he starts off this essay with some of, I think, the more interesting writing I've seen from his more essay side. So Zizek has two sides. He has the essays and the popular think pieces and then the more intensely philosophical book. So like an intensely philosophical book would be like Less Than Nothing and The Sublime Object of Ideology and then a lot of his popular essays that you can just Google his name and find his commentary on anything uh, in the news today is more of the popular side. And this one's kind of in between, I would say. You know, it's it's got some theory, but it's more also aimed at a general... There are quotes that are definitely aimed at a general audience. But the first quote mm. is, This century aimed at delivering the thing itself. At directly realizing the longed-for new order. The ultimate and defining experience of the 20th century was the direct experience of the real as opposed to everyday social reality. And um, this strikes a lot of chords with, with me in terms of a philosophy of, of modern music. A lot of modern music often comes from the perspective of giving you sound itself. Mm. Um, kind of unclouded from the symbolic and imaginary elements, it gives you the essence of a violin or, or, or the essence of a violin breaking or, or something like that. Mm. But in this aspect his first reference is the show trials in the soviet era and the idea mm. that the pursuit for some great example yeah it's a great example like great. the pursuit of the real and lacan makes the i mean sorry zizek makes the point where you know for lacan in the way zizek is also using the term the real it means a void so you're not going to actually get at it in the way that you want to get at it yeah. in any endeavor and because you, you can't. It's a sort of structural impossibility. It's it's a it's a void, um, and so to compensate for the impasse that it reaches, the show trials stage everything in sort of a symptomatic way, and that's pretty great. It's sort of an explosion of hyperactivity to cover up for the failure of not reaching it. Oh. Yes. So here's the quote where he's diving into that. The uh, the pursuit of the real, what we're, you know, mm -hmm. doing in this modern era, uh, thus equals total annihilation, a self-destructive fury within which the only way to trace the distinction between the semblance and the real is precisely to stage it as a fake spectacle. Yeah. I also think that you can... So Zizek, in a different essay or I don't even remember where it is, talks about the speeches of Nazis and like high up Nazis like Himmler. And I forget if it was Himmler, but someone gave this speech where he locates the particular moment, the pursuit for victory becomes the pursuit for more death. I think this was in violence. It was in violence. I think I yeah. remembered reading like the that pursuit one. for, we will, you know, we will go and we will crush the enemy and we will win and we will have a victorious third Reich transforms into and we will die and we will kill and we will murder and we will bludgeon and we will die and that is in its own way the moment the staging happens where it becomes theatrical like the the nazis fighting in 1945 aren't doing so great first of all the cause is not it's not on it's not on the up and up and yet they keep fighting and 
obviously there's an, a degree of sunk cost fallacy or if i don't get killed by the allies i'll get killed by my other um by my officers mm. but also there's this there's this additional aspect of like the theatricality of my downfall will be the inspiration oh that there is there's this great bit i think nails that um oh, i cannot remember na- the name of the show it's um it's like a british sketch comedy yeah uh but it's they're like two nazi officers goes up to the other one he's like hey i've been thinking are are we the baddies oh yeah have, have you looked at the emblems on our uniforms why is everything a skull <laughs> i i'm having some concerns and it's he's finally questioning these things based on you know the little emblems and and some other things the real is starting to be become a little real and i think like he's the, aware he's in this show yes stage and, and of course in this take away soviet show trials and insert end stage of of nazis where they're they're cast into this abyss really mm. i mean i mean really like and that's also true to an even greater degree in a certain sense with japanese people at the time especially the soldiers getting who are about to get called up at the end and, and it's like i think zizek's point here in beginning with that is like okay we're in america at a point where one danger could be the staging of something an unreachable goal that therefore is then staged aggressively and that does seem to be the war on terror in many aspects the need to like terror is what is terror it's everywhere it's nowhere you know yes um i and see when he talks about like the response that we have to it i would yeah I, I think we, uh, to 9-11, I mean, I think, uh, I think we kind of f- picked the one he recommended against, although he's a little wishy-washy on those. I think that's one of the ones where it's kind of hard to tell which right. direction we're supposed to be going on this. Yeah, like, um, sometimes Zizek's style is like, argument A. Argument A is so nice. It has these facets. Here's this really interesting counterintuitive evidence for it it's great i love it next paragraph but it's wrong b b is better b has these for it and then it's like but the real radical move and you're like okay zizek i get it you're doing a hegelian negation but also there's this aspect that i think in the middle of this essay when he's really i i texted Preston while reading it and saying the l- middle of this essay is a little Aberdolf Winkler, which is a character <laughs> from Rick and Morty where it's like, I will emancipate you from your skin. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's Adolf Hitler and it's Lincoln. And I think, I think that's important structurally, the fact that we are doing this because doesn't it connect to like this really, really important point he makes about violence in American media and how... 9-11 stages that. Ooh. Yeah, uh, like the, um, and the way that it compares with how 
we view violence in other countries. Like the uh, yeah the aftermath of you know these horrible things that happen in other countries, but not here. Um, because uh, you know I I can't remember because this is the eleven at the time I'm not watching the news, but he talks about how they just didn't really show like a whole lot of footage of the aftermath and like yeah. the carnage. Because they're still trying to maintain the show that violence happens there. That doesn't happen here. Right. There's a so the the more specifically the the divide that Zizek presents that he thinks at the time at least Americans had really strongly is this idea of us versus them and how it how it manifests is over there is is bad. Wherever there is, it's the other place. Yep. <laughs> and it has violence and famine and warlords and religious extremism but over here we're good we have mcdonald's and freeways and and it's fine yep everything's great and this is where the really important thing i think that zizek mentions is like he sets up the appearance that how it seems is that more and more america is a complacent place in the west that values a long life simple pleasures um it's basically commodity fetish and all these things and the other the other people in the in those parts of the world and it's important that like this is the ideological critique it's not like it's not like preston and i don't know the countries we're talking about but this is more just in the popular consciousness it's like in those places there you have segments of a population committed to die for an idea. Mm. And that, for Zizek, is like not what we have here. But then, he, that's the point when he goes, not A, but B. He but says, B. this is not right. What actually is going on is that these are conflicts that are happening internally to all of these places. So in America, he references the fact that a large part of the voting population is right-wing evangelical extremists yeah uh, this was in 2002 well i think that fomented years earlier with reagan, reagan yeah, really just, yeah point... i mean it really does i think if there is like a great plan from right-wing christians to slowly make a move on the government it definitely started right around reagan yeah and like, it was fomenting I mean, obviously, the Cold War is a gigantic cause of this. The idea of American as having... Americans as... Just, like, the very simple idea that, like, Americans have God on our side. Oh, yeah. Is in itself an intensely ideological notion when you look at how religion was suppressed in the Soviet Union, when you look at how these are conflicts that happen internally as well. They're not just these giant blocks that happen. I think in America what really gets to be a fever pitch from donald trump is the violent gasps of a dwindling evangelical population i mean you really Ooh. see these people getting more violent and really asserting a, pow a power that they don't have through majority yes they're becoming radicalized like what we talked about last week 
Right, yeah. It's it's becoming increasingly radicalized. These I expected these to connect a lot more. Like there's definitely some overlapping things, but this definitely feels like a predecessor to the other essay that we read. Because I think a lot of this stuff exacerbated the radical politics we have now. Yeah, I mean, I also think that, like, I don't think Zizek missed this at the time, but it's just not the focus of these essays, is that more and more in continental theory today in psychoanalytic literature, we see an emphasis on enjoyment. Like, we see an emphasis from Todd McGowan, Zizek himself now, and, and like, so many other just basic everyday thinkers that you meet if you talk to someone about january 6th it's not a radical point and everyone kind of suspects it that this was a block party not even a block party this was a bonanza that did the flip into violence like it and the enjoyment of that just can't be discounted as a political factor absolutely i mean they got in there and did what like goofed around yeah they, there was no actual like intent or purpose to any of that shit it just well except for of course the actual radicals who i mean showed up with the zip ties yeah and there was also a plot to overthrow the government to murder mike pence there was yeah know, but that that is how okay it's like it's like think about it in two layers of a of strata so on the top layer you have the block party coming and enjoyment and underneath you have the segment that is there to actually kill Mike Pence <laughs> and take you know and take over Crazy. the government. Um, and I think I don't think that like any of the things that happened after contradict anything Zizek says in this essay. I think that a lot of it really focuses on what he thinks we should do in terms of our mental activity, how we should situate 9/11, how we should think about it and pitfalls that happened in the past. And I think that's why we begin where with, with the great point about the Soviet show trials. I think it elucidates a certain type of danger that becomes apparent. But it, it's weird. It becomes apparent in a kind of radically different way, right? Like, it becomes apparent in, like, somehow arguing that waterboarding isn't torture Ooh. or that people don't need trials in Guantanamo. Like, kind of basic authoritarianism, right? Like, like it's sort of just... Well, that's just what an authoritarian government would yeah. do, right? It's just like, fuck over people who don't fit some model or who might have been guilty of a crime, but we, you know, we're not going to try them in a court because they're too dangerous. And then you go, well, wait a minute. Who isn't too dangerous then if you don't have yeah. evidence in a court? This it's, is, it's not good. This is how 1984 starts. Right, exactly. And it's so that one I think is just sort of basic authoritarianism. I think the point that's incredibly important, though, in this essay about it is the is the import that Zizek places on popular culture. You know, it comes from the Frankfurt School, but it also is this idea that becomes so part of the American ideology of fuck, like just movie uh, disaster movies and oh. and like Die Hard and you know all of this idea of like oh well there's going to be some climactic event where an American hero will come to defeat the enemy. Independence Day, where we all come together after the great catastrophe. Yeah, he, he gives the speech, I mean, and he how, does the thing. How many, like, they're still doing this. Like, 
there's got to be one or two a year end of the world movies like it last year it was like the moon attacking earth the yeah. moon's actually like an alien or something and it's it's coming for earth and you can't you know there's a there's a terrible movie and i, I don't even remember the name of the film but it was like the plot centered there's like a whole scene on a blimp and like there's these gangsters and I think if I remember right, the gangsters are fighting the non-gangsters, and then it turns out someone's a Nazi, and the gangster says something like, I might be a gangster, but I'm an American. <laughs> and it it solidifies that aspect of like, well, yeah, but you're a terrible American. <laughs> like you're not you're not giving us anything by way of sympathy. And yet in that moment I think you're meant to experience the gangster as somehow heroic. Like, yeah. Yeah. You are American as like an identification. <laughs> it's great. I, I mean I I think that it's um the way that we have to deal with the post-real 20th century is why the essay quotes Baudrillard in The Welcome to the Desert of the Real is, yeah, much of the 20th century was about <laughs> the real in, 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 in the ways that he outlines. But now we're in this position where we have to somehow move past that to some other, mm. to some other stage. And I think that it's very hard to figure out and I sometimes get in the essay that it's so hard to figure out, in fact, that Zizek has no he, idea he what we're quite supposed to it do. <laughs> it's like, obviously he's a left-wing thinker, but then there's points in the essay where he's like, you should do the same action, but think differently about it. And I just, I just don't subscribe to that type of thinking. Um, while I really love analytic... I'm sorry, while I really love psychoanalytic thought and ideology critique i do have a pragmatic bent in my thought where part of me doesn't care what the mentality is versus the end action that happens Ooh. just in general i guess i this kind of like where are all the deplorables on the left yeah like uh I mean, if we're at least we're making progress in the right direction, I think we need to take a little bit of the playbook from the right here. Well, that's why. I mean, I remember in the Ukraine-Russian war, I made this point that like, oh man, we're just like sitting ducks to Russian propaganda. Wouldn't be a shame if we had better internet and could do more misinformation than them in the other way. Like, right? sort of like, uh, like, wow. Good. God forbid we lie. We spend too much time <laughs> doing propaganda on our own people. We can't, you know, export some of that. Yeah, it's can't like send some of that their way there. Well, isn't that isn't that part of the ideology of of truth in this in the sense that like, oh well, Ukraine was invaded by Russia. They're in the right. We support them a hundred percent. The end. I'm going home. Okay, we give them money. We give them all all the all the weapons and all that stuff, and we you know and we hope hope for the best. But like. Russia has been undermining our elections for years. <laughs> and, like, I know that a type of campaign doesn't work like that in an autocratic country where there's so much state control over social media. But my brain just goes, like, I think we could try harder, though, we can, at sending there, some noble lies. something else. We can we lie. We can do, yeah. 
And I think that that internal propaganda machine is so part of our just never-ending elections. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. you, that they're so long-winded that they're interfering with all of Trump's trials. <laughs> and oh. they're just going to last forever. So Trump goes to an Iowa, you know, the Iowa caucus, and yet today he was in court. And it's like, it's just, it's bonkers. And it so I think... bizarre. So it, again, I think this is a teaching, like a, a moment where we can tell people from outside of America how long our elections are and how problematic it is that they're so long because it necessarily creates a spectacle all the time all the time we just have this like well oh looks like this person's dropping out of the race okay who cares it's become reality tv instead of very serious leadership roles that we're talking about here like it's all just become a joke you got numerous debates you got Iowa caucus, but then weeks later you have others, and then weeks later you have others, and then like you have the primary, and then you have. I, I mean, it just you, it just never ends. Is basically. I, I feel it. like as soon as a president's elected, we're like, all right, and now it's time to campaign for the next one. Yeah, that's it's four years away, but. That's why Romney <laughs> came out with a biography, and it was written by uh, McKay Coppins, but like he makes a lot of points about how very little of Congress is there to like you know fix roads pass laws instead of the main goal which is staying in congress Ugh. <laughs> which is like not a concern of the citizens yeah if anything i it's like they need to be cycled out more than anyone else it's not like it it's bizarre to me that we do this whole like oh well every four years we've got to elect a new president otherwise they could get corrupt but senators and congressmen, uh, nah, they could stay in there as long as they want. As Even long if as they, they keep start... getting erect- erected. <laughs> Phallic signifier getting thrown in there, eh? I mean, that's what they're <laughs> doing with what's-his-buckets these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turtle McConnell. Mitchell, Mitch, Mitchell McConnell. Mitch McConnell. But yeah, so like, I think that there are people outside of this country who don't know how much of a already ideological positioning the simple idea of campaigning is. It is so vastly intense and so many americans think it's normal i I really think that a lot of americans grow up and go like oh well yeah you have like the campaign the year before two years before the election then you have the thing during the year before the election then within six months and then eventually the following year you have a president and instead of like oh well this person's president they start they start next week Uh. (laughs) or like here's some time and then here's the president you know but getting getting back, I mean, I, I think that I think that that's an important point, though, because like I do think that that is an avenue where ideology enters into things right away. Absolutely. You know, I also think that I want to change subjects to something totally different, and I'm on page two sixty nine for this. Zizek does some sudden psychoanalytic work regarding. Uh, cutting and he usually he's talking about it usually with women but his thesis actually holds for cutting in general I feel like he subtly brings this back around at the end without directly referencing it though which we'll get to it yeah, after you dive so, into this so I'm just gonna um, so we're, we're gonna call all of this 20th century thoughts on the real 
what Badu, Elaine Badu, calls the passion of for the real. Um, so he says, recall the phenomena of cutters, mostly women who experienced an irresistible urge to cut themselves with razors or other, you know, other implements. They stand for a desperate strategy to return to the real of the body. As such, cutting is to be contrasted with standard tattooing, which guarantees the subject's inclusion in the virtual symbolic order. With cutters, the problem is the opposite, namely the assertion of reality itself. Far from being suicidal, far from signaling a desire for self-annihilation, cutting is a radical attempt to regain a stronghold in reality. Whoa, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> I, from the couple of friends I had who did the self-harm stuff, I, I think it's a, it's a fair assessment. I think that I think that a lot of times the dominant mentality is like asserting control, like young women and girls. The this is the dominant narrative. I I would say is that there's a position that they don't have control over their own actions and their life. They're told to go. They're very different places after school. They're doing all these activities, and that's the area in which they can regain control over their autonomy. And I think that's part of it. I don't think Zizek would disagree with that. I just think that like the real of the body is just so much more important in this argument than not being in control of other aspects of your life. I think it's, I think it coincides with aspects of stuff like body dysmorphia and also the idea that, okay, so like my metaphor, which contrasts with Zizek is that cutting is an attempt to knock on the door to being included in the symbolic where tattooing is the inclusion. Ooh. I think they're more related. I don't think they're just opposites. I think they're really interrelated concepts. I think I, I think a lot of... I, I, w I mean, I don't have any data to support this, but I would not be surprised if many, if not most people who went through a phase of cutting eventually found tattooing. Mm. I think I... I think I would agree with you maybe it's very complicated i mean i don't want to say that this is the only yeah, way it's not the only I, way i i wouldn't be i would not be surprised because once again and this is you know purely anecdotal evidence right well he's not giving us any more than that <laughs> yeah, exactly in, in my experience that is that has been true for the people that i know and so I think loss of control is part of it. But why does one feel the need to assert control in that way might lead one more to a different theory of the body than just control. Because, like, I, I, I think that there has to be more than just control. Because, like, I often am really skeptical and dominant, sometimes scientific circles, actually, when it falls at the end of the signifying chain on a word. Like, oh, this is all a desperate attempt to seek satisfaction, control, power, freedom, power. I think, I think power is a huge one because power for me should be a starting point that kicks us off. It shouldn't be the end I of the conversation. It's, it's an immensely complex one. Like, yeah. Power comes in, like, so many different forms. Like, I don't think that that's the end of it that's the beginning of a very 
big branching tree. Right, like if we think of Nietzsche's formulation of will as will to power, when you read Nietzsche, it's not like, and in the end, that is the will to power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's like more of a starting point and not an ending point. And I think that difference between starting point and ending point is the difference between a person who wants to talk about it and a person who's trying to get out of the conversation. <laughs> you know, like, like, like you, you know, you're, let's say you're arguing with a friend and they get tired and then they finally are like, you know what, but can't we just agree and then insert a word? Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, insert some meaningless bullshit, but what it's really saying is, I'm done talking. Yeah. Be definitely been there before. Oh, Preston's dogs just decided to go a little nuts, but that's okay. We can keep going. I think, I think that that makes people uneasy though, because these signifiers of the, of freedom, power. I, I think in the arts, the big one that just like I just I just can't stand it is the word creativity. I hmm. I can't deal with this word because it's not a useful word. It's just, it's just not. It's, it's a stand-in for God. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Oh. Like, it's like, oh, why did you Wait. write that? All oh, my sense of creativity. It's like you could just insert spirit or soul or or whatever. You know? It doesn't even matter. <laughs> I think the word is often attributed as like this trait you're born with. Like I, I often hear it as like you're a creative type. Like oh, you're so creative. Like it's, I. And I think you're, you're it right. Like, it's, it's treating as if it's this thing that, like, and God picked me to be a creative one, and that's my calling. And I just, at least in my experience, creativity isn't something that's, like, handed to you by God. Inspiration doesn't come because you were born a creative person. No, and it's not like I'm... And, and the point of... These words often suture together what is actually an absence like i don't have an explanation for for this shit i don't have a, i don't have an i can't tell someone why i wrote a piece of music so i'll say like well i'm you know creative <laughs> and you know it's like therefore oh yeah then it makes sense he wrote the piece he's creative you know yeah. it's, 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 it's great then, then we don't have to talk about it <laughs> And, like, I think that I'm not discounting the word inspiration. Like, it's not like you can't find instances where an event, a thing, Oh, no, a inspiration's piece. a thing. Inspiration from God is not a thing. God does not reach to, well, <laughs> at least in the religious sense. Once again, this is... I'm sorry, this I have is... to make the Niels Bohr joke. Preston, don't tell God what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you don't know man <laughs> don't so, tell god what to do because it's a it's the famous this is a back and forth between i forget if it's einstein and niels bohr or whoever but the person a goes you know like well god god doesn't play with dice person b don't don't tell oh, god, god what to do <laughs> you don't know what god's doing <laughs> i in at least in like the religious sense or in this uh -huh. way that creativity is often viewed like we may have like a predilection towards things, but I don't think that we're born creative and some people are just, this is something that's handed to you. And like one day you wake up and you're like, ah, yes, that's the piece. It, 
it comes from a lot of influence and like there may be like a moment where you have a connection of like oh shit yeah that's it yeah but that's discounting all of your work this is a big problem i have with a lot of like religious thinking with god it's like i you're gonna give god the credit like what what about all the stuff you did though and well, I think I think I think there's two ways of looking at it, right? On the one hand, yes, like you should take credit for what you you made. But on the flip side, I think that God is suturing over, you know, another word like the unconscious. Yeah. Because well, if it's unconscious, then you're not going to claim ownership of it in the same way. You're not going to say, "Oh, well, I made this because of all the ego I am." Ah. <laughs> you know, like that's where it's different. I think in the psychoanalytic framework, it's like the unconscious is more free is is more i mean that's that's a point i literally stole from todd mcgowan but like yeah like the the idea is that like you know then there's other words that cover that up like flow state flow state is this psychological phenomenon of when you're a great pianist and you're playing and you're not thinking about the notes because it's just you're flowing through but like it kind of still covers up certain things it's a real thing obviously that's like not like a it's not a it's not a flow state is not used in the way that the word creativity is used i mean i think i think creativity is a word that we should just not use very much or it should be used like immensely sparingly it's too generic of a term that i think blankets over a lot of things yeah and it blankets over a lot of tangible things but it also think about it this way you're on one side of a cliff often my experience of composing is i was so happy that i'm on the other side now but i don't <laughs> like don't don't come at me with some explanation <laughs> as to how i crossed uh, the, the chasm <laughs> right it's like it's not gonna work look we're here on the other side be yeah, happy let's just keep we're going good to be here we're yep. good to be here so I want to mention now one point where Zizek betrays something that I think is sort of funny. It's not important, but it is a funny point. And it's on... So he's talking about after 9-11, there was this like revitalization of what it meant to be an American. And he thought of us as being deeply suspect. But along the way, he says, the attacks gave rise to a new sense of solidarity. Recall the scenes of young African-Americans helping an old Jewish gentleman to cross the street. Scenes unimaginable a couple of days previously. Unimaginable, Chris. We're just like, you couldn't imagine that. Just like unfriendly, horrible people who hate everyone and stab anyone we get the chance Haven't to you see. been to New York? Everybody just walks around with knives out before 9-11, just ready to stab anyone that got too close. Yeah, we went from a society of unimaginable cruelty to kumbaya. It was a miracle. <laughs> it was literally escape from New York, then 9-11 happened, no more escape from New York. We didn't need Snake anymore. We didn't need... Yeah, and like, like other than a little bit racist... Isn't this also just ridiculous? Like, that's, that's one of those Zizek quotes where you're like, well, that's just stupid. Well, <laughs> like, well I, mean, I didn't know. need to include that. What, what are we doing here? Why do we go from a... <laughs> and I think what's interesting is Zizek is capable of nuance, like, with the argument about 
cutting, like we would position it differently. I, I would position it more in the Lacanian sense of like, when, when someone cuts, there is a struggle with the phallus. There's a struggle with symbolic power in whatever way it's going to exert itself. But I, I don't think, for example, that, I think that the stereotype is that masculinity is outwardly displayed and femininity reflects on the body. But I think that advances in thinking regarding transgender identities don't let that hypothesis stick. I, mm. I don't think, because it doesn't account for the feminine expression becoming masculine or become it doesn't account for these more fluidities that happen because you know for Zizek he's just not going to like that fluidity you know that's going to be more to lose in Guattari but like I like the fluidity but what I want to hold on to from Lacan is the sense of signifying masculine versus feminine mm. you know like at a drag show you go out and you'll have a person with triple d tits with a gigantic fake cod piece and it only works if they signify right uh. so if, if massive tits don't signify an aggressive side to femininity and the dick an aggressive side to masculinity then what you're left with is a sense of like well and apologies uh that got really loud for some reason that was our chord but if those things don't signify correctly or not correctly but just as they do then the landscape of comedy is broken a little bit, I think, maybe? Mm. I don't know, like, wouldn't, wouldn't the... If, if massive tits didn't signify feminine in some very specific way, I think that the show wouldn't go on. No, I think the entire concept of drag falls apart Yeah. without, like, the the like very over the top expressions of Agenda. masculine and feminine. and feminine yeah, yeah. absolutely you know, like you have hyper feminine amab which um, the term means assigned male at birth people who are drag queens but how do drag king queens perform accentuating the most feminine features big hair and also a sense of intimidation because the drag queen is often taller than a stereotypical um amab person would be i'm sorry afab assigned female at birth person is going to be and i think and that's the attitude of like a good queen like that's something you should expect when you go to a show is like that you feel very small your first time yeah you feel very little and um they can pick up on it yeah, it becomes part of it. It's yes. your perception of their grandeur, basically. Yes. Yeah. And for kings, it's even more open because drag queens is sort of a solidified cultural phenomena where drag kings, which is usually when AFAB people who are assigned female at birth do a more masculine garb. And when I say garb, I don't mean like people wear pants. I mean people do contouring makeup and chest pieces and become himbos and it's it's a, it's this wide world but what i like from lacan is that we can talk about these signifiers as still having some rigidity 
and the play of them becomes the comedy that shows the phallus as bankrupt. You know, it, it critiques mm. power in that way. Whereas I think sometimes for Zizek, he has sometimes a very essentialist view of which sex is doing which things. Ooh. I... That was kind of one of the things I was like, I don't, I mean, some statistics on that, because I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true, like the... Because isn't there stigma against male cutters? Yeah! Like, exactly. Like, that, I still think that that's a thing, and it's also, like, I think that that exact same, like, whether it's an attempt to regain power, or yeah. return the real to the body, Yeah. um... It's not always cutting, and I think guys find other ways to do it that are more socially acceptable, if that makes sense. <laughs> I thought of another... This is from Monty Python, but I'm going to map it onto our conversation. The stereotypical view is the the woman commits suicide, and the man commits extroverted suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... You know, it goes, you know, murder... Is just extroverted suicide, <laughs> and I think I think that is a Zizekian joke. That's a Zizek joke, right? Yeah. And that and that fits in his flipping of opposites. But when things elide opposition, the joke kind of falls apart, right? It doesn't work, and I think that's the limit of of Zizek's trained thought. In in when he's talking about female cutting, and I'm putting I'm putting that in quotes, but you can't see female cutting. Because I would also argue that there is a sense in psychoanalysis that no matter what gender expression you wind up at, there is a reckoning process with your birth. I mean, there has to be. There has to be a reckoning process that the best I can do in the 21st century, in 2024 now, is in the truly psychoanalytic fashion, that relationship, I don't know if it can be systematized into like a coherent philosophy of like, oh, you had this, so therefore you are this. You had this, therefore you're this. Mm. I think it's just going to be a deeply individualistic experience of reality that's going to have structural elements that are universal, but the ultimate transition that a person goes through I don't know it's like i think it's super important to hear transition stories because what do you hear you hear some overlap but a lot it's, of difference it's all so individual and i i don't know i think you're uh you're on to uh to like i think that there's been a lot of uh individualization in the wrong direction for a long time in America. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, give an example. Um the libertarian party turning into the tea party. Like that this mm -hmm. big concept of like I'm an individual who isn't going to be controlled by big groups and I have free thoughts and I think on my own and nobody's going to control the way I think. Why does everybody else at the convention have the exact same things to say as me? shit because we're all thinking the exact same shit well it's kind of like um like there's a key and peel sketch where it's the black republicans convention and they all say the same thing and what do they say i'm not like others you know they're like i'm <laughs> yes. and they, I, they all come up i'm pissed 
I'm royally pissed. <laughs> and then the next guy comes up, I'm pissed. I'm, you know, I'm royally pissed. <laughs> and it's all men. Yes. <laughs> too, you know? Um, but I, uh, I think that that's like, an obsessed like obsessing so much on individuality yeah that you're not developing as an individual yeah it's like a lot of the ann rand people who all just quote ann rand yes and like, you're like well doesn't that isn't that not what being an individual means because like i'm kind of for the reactionary tendency of like someone coming out of like you did you came out of religion and you found parts of objectivism and it's like I think that's a great passage, but then you left because then you actually became an individual. <laughs> and that's like, cause you want to have your, like, don't you want to write your own books and play your own music and have your own thoughts? Like it's not all just, critiques of documents. You get to this point where you're like, holy shit, everybody's just saying the same fucking thing. And Rand said, and I don't know how much of that was really all that original. Right. And like, that's why, I mean, I think objectivists would hate my, characterization of this but like if you look at Ayn Rand's novels it's like oh this is like um weird because there's all these Soviet tropes oh my god you know god. what I mean you get the Soviet tropes but then they're inverted and you're like yeah so you're like in a weird way an anti-Soviet Soviet writer in a oh sense like she's still part of that group yes. of Russian I'm gonna call it experimentalism even though it's it's more obviously regressive in a lot of in, in, in a lot of senses but like the hero the, the the hero triumphing in soviet literature as for the state becomes the hero triumphing for capitalism yes and it's like you didn't really get very far did you <laughs> you know you didn't get to that next stage of of criticism nope i think that's hard okay there's one quote before we go and obviously there's incredible amounts more that we will not get to in this essay I really recommend people to read it. It's very readable, um, but I, I think that... It just covers a lot it just covers of a stuff lot. really fast, and there's a couple spots where you're like, yeah, yeah. Wait, why are we moving to, like, a new... Th oh, we're, we're done with that. Yeah. We're just done with that? We're, okay, we're moving on. So there's a point where he talks about the image of Tiananmen Square in the West, and he talks about this in a way which is fine, but, like, is a mark of him rushing and not being in a certain sense a good grad student because what what he says is like look when you when we in the west look at an image of Tiananmen Square what we are hit with is a whole phantasmatic structure of how China is as a whole and we project basically just projection onto the Chinese people and then he stops Yep, then we're just done. But we don't talk about how the Chinese view A, mm -hmm. Tiananmen Square, right. and that picture in the context that we're used to, or B, pictures of people falling out of the tower, or yeah. So he ends that the talking plane about flying how, into the tower. Yeah, like one of the image that the famous images of nine eleven that was the time cover. I actually remember it as a kid. It sat in the middle of my dad's car for a couple weeks was the image of the two towers on fire and a person jumping to their death. And it's a very powerful image. It's a very horrifying image. It's a very close to in the real image in a sense. And yet 
yeah, what does a person in mainland China view about it? What does a person from Taiwan think about it? You know, how is the signification of Tiananmen Square to people in Taiwan? How is, you know, who are obviously tied up with China, but have their own incredible sense of identity, which is distinct from China. And also, how much does Zizek just not want to touch actually, you know, getting some common testimonials? Do <laughs> like getting little, some research? A little footwork? A little footwork? Because, like, isn't that really interesting? He gets to the point where, and, and I know, like, a grad student could then go and get 400 testimonials, and we could probably find them. We, this is all stuff we could all go and do. It was, But a, he didn't do it. It was a little bit of a disappointment, because it's a great idea that I was kind of excited to see, like, this different viewpoint, because it's one of those things that took me way too long to figure out, which, you know, mm -hmm. born and bred in America is this entire concept of like uh like especially with language that it doesn't even directly translate and that's not how language even works yeah and the entire thought processes of some places is just different it's it is evolved in a completely different route yeah yeah well like okay so there's a great lacan quote the other of the other is the real which is <laughs> we could do a whole episode on just that quote. But I think, so I'm from Michigan and I came to Utah for my PhD. And like the first thing you realize is that Utah is an intensely battleground oriented state because there is an incredible amount of exmos, usually from their own family, my co-host or host, I'm the co-host. I don't know who's which one's which, but the arrival in Utah, you suddenly see this as a religious battleground state and you meet people who've never left. Like I remember moving into one place and someone was like, well, what's your, what's your stake or what's your ward? I forget. What's your ward? Which one would they ask? It'd be a ward. What's your ward? And I went, oh, I'm not Mormon. And they must've yeah. heard me say that, yeah. but then they just sort of kept talking about their ward. And I was like, Oh my God! Who the hell cares? It's like someone being like, "I well, what Star Wars movie is your favorite?" I don't watch Star Wars. Well, in the second movie, you're like, "Okay, all right, I guess we're gonna keep." So, I, and I, the only way I can think about that is that person hasn't considered the fact that their culture isn't the all whole culture. Of culture. Well, I, it's uh, it's kind of a thing with the belief with like the LDS church is like it is the culture you just haven't had the opportunity to get the culture yet and some people just can't understand why you wouldn't come over to this thing that is so obviously right because they said so right but but also isn't there a really complicated thing when okay so like I'm reading a great book called uh, Night of the Living Res, and one of the main characters, Morgan Talty. I'm gonna look it up while we're talking, and he. In it, there's a story where the main characters are drinking steel reserves, which in other parts of the country signify, more urban black culture, and other ones like Red Dog signify rural white culture, but if you haven't been brought into signification of different cultures, you don't know what they're gonna signify. 
you don't know which drinks signify where. And what's really interesting about Mormonism in Utah is that it's sort of an island, whereas in Michigan, Mormonism is totally different. It's like, I'm a Mormon. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> it's not, there's not like any... There's no anything you know mormon people like born and raised in salt lake like three quarters of the population of the state is mormon and if you haven't spent time outside of the country it's like uh what what do you mean that most of the people i interact with aren't gonna be mormon that doesn't make any sense which is weird because it's a state. It's it's just a little state. It's a big state. And, well, I mean, yeah. It's a... <laughs> Compared to the rest of the world, it's really weird with how connected we are as well that this, like, still persists in Utah. Well, I, I think that what... And this is where... Um, when I listen to religious radio, because I have a blast listening to far-right religious radio, often it's like, we're here against all the other viewpoints. The atheists, the Muslims, the Jews, the secularists, which is a great word. And it's great because it's like, well, like, I don't know if all those things are like the same thing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, 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 rejection of a belief didn't posit anything. <laughs> it's like, and I guess there is a cultural worldview that's very secular. And I think, too, a lot of really indoctrinated people everything is secular muslims are secular jews are secular buddhists are secular and pink floyd is secular equally oh equally 100 percent. yeah so wait we should end with his last quote we should yeah let's because zizek ended an essay he, like he wrote an ending like it's an ending not oh i guess we're moving on to the next essay yeah, you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead and hit us with this one. It's pretty good. In the 2000 electoral campaign, President Bush named the most important person in his life as being Jesus Christ. Whoa. Sorry. Well, I kind now, of talked about that, too. Now he has a unique chance to prove that he was serious. For him, as for all Americans today, love thy neighbor means love the Muslims. Or it means nothing at all. Kind of relevant today. Because yeah. we're kind of seeing another explosion of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim anti sentiment, yeah. or just anti-Arab in general. Yeah, and like anti-before the recent Israel-Palestinian, I'm going to call this one an event, the, um, the ongoing stripping of trans people of their rights. Ooh. You know, so much of the talk is dehumanizing. And it's, it's kind of amazing how much of it comes from, like, the Christian right wing. It's like, did did you read the book? I think you may have skipped over a couple important parts about Jesus. And I think... So Kierkegaard wrote... Saren Kierkegaard wrote an entire book on love thy neighbor as, as thy love thyself. And the entire book is... First of all, it's phenomenal... Um, it's it's a very torturous work, uh, as is all of Kierkegaard. He's a he's is pretty great, but he really interrogates how hard it is to follow through on that concept. He deals Ooh. with it from the one side of 
No, it doesn't mean flagellate yourself and, and hate yourself. No, it doesn't mean give everything away and not have anything. And it means somehow love yourself as you love the neighbor. And that's, and, and I think that after reading that, you know, that quote always struck me as sort of just like, um, do unto others as you do unto yourself type of quote. And it's not, it's, it's an incredibly hard quote to follow through on. Oh, it's, uh, I don't know, I think it, it takes a lot more thought before you can even start doing the work on that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good. We probably should read some excerpts from that at some point. Definitely. To take, to see, okay, but what would Bush have done if he considered it? Mm. See, I do not think we did, he definitely did not follow through on, uh, on Jesus Christ being his favorite, as Zizek would have imagined. No. His... No, I don't think he did. No. I think we kind of did the, the opposite. Guantanamo Bay doesn't really fit with uh, the whole Jesus, <laughs> love thy neighbor. <laughs> nah, that, uh, I think they might have missed the mark there. All right. Well, oh. thank you for chatting with me today, Preston. It was really fun to do another Zizek. Um, next week, we are going to be doing an essay by Felix Guattari. We haven't decided which one yet, but um, we've done a ton of psychoanalysis and like Lacanian theory type things from Zizek. He seems to keep popping up. He always will. Stuff. He always will. Man, the man's oh, like the fucking... Just... Okay, like the joke I make about Zizek is if you've ever seen Scott Pilgrim, like the sister, it works like every job in the town yeah. <laughs> and, like, and it's like i'll literally go and just like buy a volume of essays and it's like forward by slap boy g-jack and it's like what the hell I, i'm just like now the joke is gonna be i go to like the botany section it's gonna be forward by slap boy g-jack <laughs> oh you'll, you'll have to get it just so we can read the the preface that he wrote for a botany book yeah yeah i mean i think like I, I know we're a little over, but like, you know, we got time. And I feel like there's a quote that Zizek said where he, you know, he went into a depression very early on in his life. And it was like, I can kill myself after the next book. Or like, it was something like that. Like, I can't, I can't kill myself until I finish this book. And I think there is the kernel of universality in what, when he says that is that the desperation in his thinking is unparalleled the the just the just flow that he gets into and it's problematic and it has issues but it i haven't read a thinker like that very often at least it, it, it happens but but that's i think zizek's main stylistic it's like a flow state like we talked about earlier i definitely think he writes from a flow state like a musician would when you're in the zone or whatever you want to call it where it's just you are spilling your thoughts onto the page and they're just coming as fast as you're writing them down <laughs> that reminds me okay i know we're over but there's a great fucking list of worst songs ever written um where it's like uh chinese food makes me sick and i get along in the summer in that summer and it's, I don't know who, it doesn't matter who wrote the song, but the critique of the song is 
stream of consciousness only works if you have any thoughts in your head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I like that. I think that's a good one to end on. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Until next time.